This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Outfit, shoes match shirt. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming to the Spark Theatre. My name's Stephanie Merritt. It's a great pleasure to be here. Was that you? That's, that's the thing reminding me that I have to be on stage oh, to do well this. Oh, well done. <laughs> um, I feel if you only had time to see one bearded, iconic leader of popular movements and cult figure, you have picked the right one this evening. Um, Thank you very much for joining us, and it's my very great pleasure to be talking to Stuart McBride. I'm just going to... Uh, how many people have seen Stuart talk before? Okay, so you know what you're in for. Um, good. Well, for those who haven't, um, I'm just going to give you a brief uh, prissy of his career. This is taken um, from Stuart's website, so it must be uh, entirely accurate. Stuart McBride was born in Dumbarton, but ran away to join the circus at the age of nine where he specialised in wrestling bears for money. In 1975, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his revolutionary work on Ernbrew, and then went on to create... Stop, 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 stop. On what? Iron Brew. Uh, Iron Brew, sorry. Welcome to Scotland. it's all right, nobody noticed. You, you, okay, okay, well, you can translate no, as we no, go no, along, no, no. If, uh, if I get anything else wrong. Um, he went on to create the world's biggest ball of belly button lint. In 1989, he joined the Secret Intelligence Service, but was later invalided out due to a back injury sustained while performing a reverse overhead pile driver on a grizzly bear. He is also the author of 18 novels, including the 12 Logan McRae titles, numerous short stories, and a children's book. He's won the CWA, uh, Crime Writers Association Award, Dagger in the Library. He's won the ITV Crime Thriller Award for Breakthrough Author and has three times been nominated for the Theakston's Crime Novel of the Year Award. He is also, most importantly, World Stovey's Champion of 2014. Yep. And what I've always wanted to know about, is that a kind of, like a hereditary title, that once you're champion, you, you get to keep that for life, or do you have to keep fighting for it? It's a bit like being president. So I, you know, even though you know, <coughs> Satan's Oompa Loompa, when he finishes his term in the White House, will always be Mr. President, regardless of you know how delightful he is. I will always be World Stobie's champion. Good, but I hope it was one with less corruption and intervention from Russia. Um, Ooh, Russian Stobies. <laughs> um, now, Stuart, uh, there's so much to get through. I love the fact We're... Stephanie has been mainlining caffeine all afternoon. <laughs> Just to cope with this experience. It'll um, be fine, it'll be fine. I know it will be fine. I'm very excited about it, as you can tell. And it's not just the coffee. So the new book, The Blood Road, um, is the new Logan McRae, which is an absolute treat if you haven't read it. And if you have read it, don't ask questions with any spoilers in um, at the end, for those that haven't, because Stuart will be signing copies of this and all of the others um, in the book tent just outside afterwards. Um, what I particularly... Well, there's one little um, aspect of this that I love, which is that there is a, a sort of terrible, trashy, true crime book 
that uh, Logan is reading in this that's called Cold Blood, Dark Granite. Yes. Um, I mean, imagine. Imagine somebody choosing I that sort of title. Where that title would possibly have come from. <laughs> the thing is, he also at one point finds a, a box of what he describes as fairly trashy pulp crime yes. novels in, in somebody's attic, all of which are, titles are a variant on Blood, Bloody, Death and Dark. Yes, a deadly, deadly, bloody death. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can basically go back as far back in time to my, I think it was about my fourth book, just using the words dead, dark, <laughs> blood, and death. Four, it's just four words, all of those books. And where do, at what point does the title come in the process? Do you, do you have the title in mind at the beginning, or uh, does it, do you figure it out as you're going along? And do you feel that you have to include one of those elements? Well, Stephanie, I don't know if your editor is like my editor. Because <laughs> she's we, very we, like your we, editor. Is she exactly the same exact, as She's very, almost very identical. Exactly yeah. identical, yeah. Is she sleeping with Sarah Hodgson's husband? <laughs> <laughs> I, no comment. Okay. Because it, it would be the same person, dirty-minded fish. Oh, no, obviously then it's not the same person. <laughs> Okay. That's a relief. It's I just, thought he was implying just, that... Well, no, it's just... Okay. Yeah. Yes, she's very like her. In <laughs> fact, she is her. Oh, no, 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 it's somebody else. Right, yes. They so are very similar. Forget what has just been put <laughs> into your ears. We'll edit that out of the, um, the sound clippy thing. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> so, Stephanie, you also write for HarperCollins, don't you? Yes, and we do have editors who are quite similar. But are not the same but person. But they're not the same person. Or having affairs. <laughs> With each That other's. we are aware no. of. Do you not get this thing where you say, this is what I want to call the book? And then the marketing department go, no! Mm -hmm. And you go, why? <laughs> and they go, hmm. Go, well, what do you want me to call it then? And they go, hmm. <laughs> and then more titles, more titles. We went through something like 234 different titles before we came up with Flesh House. Wow. I actually, for Dark Blood, I held a competition and anybody in HarperCollins was allowed to enter. What is the title going to be for this book? And the one person from Bishop Briggs, which is where the, all the books are, are stored um, in Glasgow, at the warehouse put in something like 67 different... Um, <laughs> Not a lot of work was done that day, I don't think. But I know so it, it's always an absolute nightmare getting a title for a book. I think I've managed to keep Cold Granite, they let me have, um, Birthdays for the Dead, they liked, which is good because the entire book just came from the title. <laughs> and Sawbones, and I think that's it. Mm. Those are the only, only books I've been allowed to name. It is, it's, a, it's a difficult business because you've got the, sort of the idea of what readers expect to find and then what you're trying to convey and not give too much away with the title. So well, uh, also, uh, it, it, it affects the flavour of the book as I write it as well. Yeah. If I think of it as this and then suddenly it has to become that that's that tastes different to this while i'm writing so currently <laughs> whose phone's that oh naughty 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 person not as naughty as somebody in, Sh in shetland i was doing an event in the library there and someone's phone went off and she, she literally and we all went ho ho whose phone is that and she went sorry 
<laughs> I'm at an event. No, I'm at an event in the library. Have you looked in the fridge? <laughs> well, go look in the fridge then. <laughs> and this went on for about two. Well, was it? Wait, you could have stepped outside. <laughs> Where was I? Uh, titles. Titles. We were talking about. We were talking about titles and um, and having a bit of fun with. Oh yes. uh, so, Having a bit of fun with the genre. So in the genre. Currently, um, with the book I'm writing just now, I have told my editor and my agent, this book is currently called All That's Dead. I understand that you and Mike may wish to change this, but while the first draft is going on, this is what the book is called. Anybody who calls it something different than this will be crowned Captain Poopy McPoop Hat. <laughs> so, of course, they feel, ooh, I don't want to be Captain Poopy McPoop Hat. <laughs> So this is this is the thing. And this they is obviously the don't want to interfere with your flow while you're. While no, you're I think they just it. don't want to be called Captain Poopy. <laughs> and, and who would indeed? Um, now, in two thousand and eight. Are, are you regretting this yet? Not yet. Good. But we haven't got to the, the scope. The scope. We haven't got to the. Um, yes. The bit that no, but, but, ooh, yes. we're not revealing ooh. yet. Stuart's been. Um, Telling me that something's going to happen in this event, which I have had assumed for weeks was a joke, uh, and apparently it's not. So there's that to look forward to. Um, Stuart's going to answer all the questions through the medium of modern dance towards the end. I, <laughs> I have made people do that at Edinburgh Festivals before. Have you? Yeah, but just... Um, has, has anybody here read my, 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 my picture book, my children's book for slightly twisted children? <laughs> no? Uh, Skeleton Bob. And it, it, it rhymes, and I did it for my, my nephew um, when he was about three or four, I think. And I had just sent one off to him for his birthday, and it was the Edinburgh Book Festival. So I asked for a volunteer for the audience. And this, this young guy, who was clearly on a first date with his squeeze, went, yeah, I'll do it, because I'm cool. Come on up, cool guy. So he's... Look at me, I'm on stage, yeah. So I said, and, and, and so what I'll do is I'm, I'm going to recite this first story of Skeleton Bob. And what's your name, John? Oh, John. <laughs> well, John, you're going to interpret it through interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> and he started off giving it, really sort of showing off for his girlfriend. And by about the, the third stanza, all of his motions had become really, really small <laughs> until at the end he was doing that dad dance. <laughs> you know, the, the, one, the one at weddings that just goes... <laughs> I don't think he got any that night. <laughs> but he had a good anecdote to take away for his neck. No, I don't think he, he don't think he's ever going to tell anybody. Oh, yeah, this time I got up to say he'd been all Mr. The Man. <laughs> and he's never come back to a book festival since. Possibly. <laughs> um, now, in 2008, you said in an interview... Did I? Yes, you did. Uh, and I'd be very surprised if you don't remember everything you've said in an interview 10 years ago, Stuart. But, but we then, all know what fake news is like. We do. So 10 years ago, you said, I'd go mad if I had to write about the same person for 20 years. Now, um, you've, it's, been, it's been 13 years with Logan so far since the first book was published. So um, I'd like to know how the insanity is progressing uh, but, uh, or whether... Well, 
you retract that now, whether you're actually enjoying spending all this time well, with him. Of those 13 years, two of them have been spent in the company of Ash Henderson. Mm -hmm. One of them has been spent in the company of Will, Will Hunter. And one has been spent in the company of Callum McGregor. Oh, and, uh, and, and, steel, and there was steel, also D.I. Steele and Tufty. Mm. So I'm spreading. So is that how you keep your relationship with him fresh, by going off with other, other people? We buy presents and we go out on date nights. <laughs> um, the problem for me is that because, I mean, these, I know we're, it's, it's, it's crime fiction and a lot of people, even particularly the guy whose portrait you'll see on the outside, of uh, the building just here, isn't it? Um, Henry. Howard. Not, not from the Halifax, the other one, um, who, who thinks crime novels are just you know, a sack of old poop. And you can put them in your poopy hat and, and wear a hat that's made of poop if it's a crime novel, because that's what crime novels are. No, you've lost me. I don't know who you're quoting. Jacobson, Howard I... Jacobson. Oh, him, yes. Yes. <laughs> He's on the he's a big photograph just there. He's sitting on a bench. Oh, okay. Being all... Looking thoughtful. I think he's meant to be smoking an invisible cigarette. But right. I'm trying really hard not to make a sniff my fingers joke, so let's not go there. <laughs> um, yeah. Where so, was I? Howard Jacobson doesn't like crime novels. Oh, he hates crime novels. But they're not... Crime novels aren't meant to really be about things, and they're not meant to oh. have much in the way of, of skill involved in the writing of them. That, that's, that, oh, that's that is his this, view. That's this okay. quite, a, quite a popular conception mm. amongst a certain kind of writer, that crime fiction is, is just, it's pish for the masses. It's, it does not do anything more than, say, a Superman, supermarket own brand Rice Krispies will do, compared to, you know, you could be having special K with red berries but you're <laughs> eating crime fiction. So, mm -hmm. given that, um, I and a lot of the crime writers that I know put a hell of a lot of effort into the prose to make it read... I was... I'm going to name drop here. One was talking to the First Minister not half an hour since. <laughs> and... She was saying that, that crime fiction is because it's an, an easy read. And then I thought, oh, well, oh, I, I don't mean that. But it, good crime fiction is an easy read. But to make it an easy read, it's a difficult write. And there is an awful lot that goes into making things seamless, making the prose seamless, making the dialogue believable, doing it in such a way that you cannot see the mechanics that hold everything together. It's very easy to write the kind of prose where everybody can see the structure but to actually do it in such a way that it feels natural and it flows. And it doesn't just flow smoothly, but it can flow very quickly as well. And at the same part time, impart as much information as you need in a crime fiction for a, a crime novel to work. So there's actually an awful lot involved in it. Uh, and I write using a, a method called close associative discourse, which is an incredibly specific point of view narrative method whereby you are receiving unfiltered everything that Logan does. So there, there is no author in the process. It is just the point of view character in that scene. Their perception is what colours the prose and what flavours the prose, not me as a, a middle-aged, oh, 
be, you know, very well-dressed, sexy, bearded man. Um, Late but, youth, I think it's called, until you get to about 55. It's, yeah. Nowhere near that. <laughs> Not yet. Um, but, but yeah, but it, it's, 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 it's a, because it's this very in-depth methodology for writing, it means if Logan is miserable, what I'm doing is spending my entire time going, OK, well, here's a, here's a little exercise for you. I, I do this at writing workshops. Imagine you were walking up a hill first thing in the morning. You have had a terrific night the night before. Um, you've just met the love of your life. Uh, you went out for a couple of drinks. Things haven't gone embarrassing. You haven't woken up and gone, oh, dear, who did that in the bed? None of that kind of stuff. You've had a great night. You're going to see this person again at lunchtime, and you're on your way to work, and you're walking up the hill, and the sun is shining, and the, the seagulls are, are twirling overhead. How does that feel? How do you describe that? Now picture exactly the same scene, except that you have a hangover, and you're about to get fired when you get into work. It's exact, it's, the, the sky is still blue, the seagulls are still there, the hill is still there, but everything is perceived differently. And that's what this close associative discourse is all about. It's about trying to make you feel what Logan feels as he feels it. So, I, so spending so much time with him when I do horrible things to him is really physically draining mm -hmm. because I am making him miserable all the time. So I have to, I'm having to sit there and think, well, how would I feel if I was this miserable? If this had just happened to me, if I knew this was happening, how would that look? How would that feel? How would this taste? Um, and that's why I don't want to spend so much time with him. Well, and you don't spare him. I mean, you, you've put him through, some, through the mill quite a bit over the years, haven't you? Yeah, but he deserves it, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, Imagine if, if Logan gets up and goes to work. Nothing really happens. They go out for lunch. You're going to get bored with that quite quick, aren't you? So, yeah, he, he, he needs a bit of conflict. Well, I, but he gets it, he, you know, he's, he's dealing with terrible stuff at work, and then he's like, well, I had quite a lot to deal with in his personal life as well. So, you know, you are throwing it at him from all sides. So is that why, I mean, when you finish a Logan novel, do you feel like it's now it's time to, to take a break and go and spend some time with somebody else from, with a different kind well, of... Well, my, my wife. <laughs> apart from your wife. Um, but with another, you know, with a different kind of fictional... I have sometimes, sometimes, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the uh, Steel and Tufty book, Now We Are Dead, was because I had spent so much time with Logan, and Ash Henderson is a miserable sod as well. And for obvious, really well, very clear reasons why he is the way he is. And Callum really didn't have his troubles to seek. So the, spending a couple of months with Tufty was just a delight. <laughs> I just love Tufty. He is just so much fun to write. Well, and still, too, and I wondered if there was an element of kind of popular demand in that, because readers really do love Steel, or at least we kind of love to find her appalling in the way that Logan does. So I wondered if readers had been saying to you for a while, will you do a book about Steel? Um, off and on, but it, it was more about... Because of what happens at the end of In the Cold Dark Ground, mm. and... I didn't really want to spend a Logan book dwelling on that because it, I thought it would be much more interesting to show what happened after from Steele's perspective mm. rather than from Logan's. And also it was a, a chance to actually 
show the world through Steele's eyes, because we always see Steele through Logan's eyes. So it's always an outsider looking at her. So we don't, we don't, we only get hints at her motivations and who she actually is. Whereas when it's through her eyes, we actually get how she sees the world, and it's a very different picture. I wanted to come back to. Um, you didn't think this would be so serious, did I'll you? No, I d I'm delighted to. I'm having a lovely time um, with you answering my questions. This time, seriously. I'm wait, just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, <laughs> I wanted to come back to what you were saying about, um, about the kind of inherent snobbery towards crime fiction. Because some, I think um, what you were saying about the technical skills required to make a narrative look seamless, because I think there is a, there's very often a, a snobbery among kind of critics in particular towards anything with plot. And plot is so vital for crime novels, and your books are so meticulously plotted. And I wondered whether that's, you know, if you spend a lot of time at the outset figuring out exactly what's going to happen where and then just write through, or whether it comes as, it, as you go along. Depends on the book. Quite, quite often what I'll do is, if, even if, if I am able to plot all the way through a book, I will get a third of the way through and go, actually, from where I am now at the writing let's stick those three scenes together, let's move that scene to there, let's get rid of this chunk, because mm -hmm. it would be much better just to jump forward and deal with this from that point of view. So, Do, do you think that thing, you know, when people dismiss crime fiction as an easy read, do you think what they're, what they're saying is, because you can read it quickly, because it's, the reader wants to know what happens next, and so you read, and you might sit up oh. all night reading it, as people often do, that that's really what they're saying, that something that's really well plotted is... Is too easy to, you know, that it's well, a, that's what they mean by an easy read? I, well, I, for, for me, plot should have the same amount of weight given to it as character, as structure, as pace, as dialogue, as setting. And the, the, it, it's, it's spinning plates. And if you just have one great big platter that is nothing but narrative, then, yeah, you can do that. And there are certain sections of of the community that will applaud you for that, but it's not the same as perfectly balancing all these different little strands and making it, making it work seamlessly. Not rocky, not, mm. not lumpen, not so somebody's reading it. Oh, I mean, Tolkien, for example, God bless his cotton socks. There is an awful lot of time where he's obviously just gone, I like genealogy. I really, <laughs> really like genealogy. I wonder if I could do about six or seven pages of just nothing but genealogy. Playing on a lean, tiny piano. But, that, but that's the thing, it, it's, it's, that, it's, it's the balancing that is the difficult part. And do you think that that, but perhaps this attitude that, you know, that crime fiction is a sort of lesser genre than what we might call literary fiction. Um, oh, God bless you, by the way. Thanks. For, for what? Literary fiction. Literary fiction. I love, um, I love that. It's that, that's that weird <laughs> conflation of literary fiction and literature. Yes. When we look at, at, at what is actually literature, you, you've got Dostoevsky, who wrote a hell of a lot of crime fiction. We've got Dickens, who wrote a hell of a lot of crime fiction. You know, Wuthering Heights, there's a hell of a lot of crime fiction in that. That is, you know, the, the, so much of what we consider to be literature, the books that have really stood the test of time from generation to generation, are crime fiction. Yeah, well, they're, they're mysteries. There's always a mystery. Yeah, because because these, these are books that are about people. Do you think that now that um, 
I mean, we've just got a crime writer on the book along list, Belinda Bauer, very exciting. And uh, crime fiction is the fastest growing section of, in, in terms of book sales. So do you think that attitude is, is beginning to feel quite antiquated and quite sort of out of touch, the idea that there's a, a distinction between crime fiction and then sort of proper good writing? I think, I think the emperor's clothes are beginning to show a bit, but there are still people proudly strutting around in the buff with everything flippity-floppiting, because it, it usually is men. Um, that the, the, the theirs is the only way to see the world. Interesting. I think um, you know. I think that uh, I think there's a much greater kind of acceptance now of. of but there are also very different levels to it. I mean, this is yeah. one of the things I was asking Stephanie before because she's recently brought out um, "While You Sleep," which is contemporary crime fiction with a with a twist. Yeah, I'm not it's a sort of suspense. Yeah, 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 yeah. The plot, the plot, uh, but also historical crime fiction. And when I've asked other people who've done that foot in both camps, so contemporary and historical, the historical crime fiction is always considered to be much more artistic and artistically yeah, funny, worthwhile than contemporary crime fiction. Which is, if I could, if I could be arsed with the research. <laughs> and of course, Christopher Brookmeyer um, and his wife have just uh, combined to become Ambrose Parry. Um, to write historical crime fiction set in Edinburgh. It's launching on Sunday, here, I think. Very good book as well. Yeah, it's well, terrific. I've, 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 I've actually got my name on the back of it. Well, I think we both blurbed it, yeah, actually. I don't well, know if it is, but it's and, a terrific book. And I, I, I blurb um, almost nothing, so I can wholeheartedly recommend that to you folks. Uh, I wanted to come back to what you said about, um, just on the, a similar subject, this idea that... Um, that crime fiction, that it's, you know, it's like cheap Rice Krispies and it doesn't, it, it doesn't do anything and it's not about anything because um, I've just come back this weekend from, uh, from Oxford from another um, crime festival um, in Oxford where a lot of our friends and colleagues were giving talks on the subject of politics and crime. And um, a lot of people were saying that the, there is this great thing that crime fiction can go to so many different social issues without kind of hitting you over the head with them. That When you've got a, a police officer or a detective character, they can sort of probe into all kinds of different levels of society. Um, and that's... You've done that a lot in, in these books, and particularly with Logan. And, and it, certainly in this one, I was very conscious... It's not a political book, but there are all sorts of little themes in it where you are making a kind of commentary through Logan's eyes. You're making a commentary on certain aspects of society and perhaps the way that we treat people or the way that people the way that people's background informs what they become and I just wondered if you could say a bit about you know how you tackle social issues through Logan and through the stories um to us I've been I've been doing this since the very beginning but mm. I, I I don't like a book when I read it that goes hello gentle reader look at my themes look at them <laughs> As if you're a puppy that has done something terrible on the carpet and you need to have... Look at it! Look at the theme! This is what we're talking about! Look at it! Um, so th these things will be there. And if you want to read that, if you want to read that from the book, then I'm more than happy for you to do so. But if you want to, if you want to enjoy it without going to that kind of, of, of depth, then that's cool too. Um, well, you don't make po you know you don't make heavy-handed points. They're just sort of it's there in the dialogue and it's there in the situations that he encounters. Well, my fourth book, Flesh House, 
which is the one where it stops being blood dark, deadly dark, dead dark, <laughs> deadly death. Um, is on the surface, it's a police procedural. But just below the surface, it's a horror novel, which I thought was really blatantly obvious because it's set at Halloween. A lot of it takes place in the dark. The antagonist wears a full face mask and carries a big kitchen knife. Hello, Jason Voorhees, and pretty much every slasher movie ever, ever done. And there are fucking ghosts in it. <laughs> there should have been a clue. And only one reviewer actually, from a, a, horror, uh, a horror reviewer in Australia noticed that, that there was this... There's, actually, there's quite, a, there's quite a fine line, isn't there, between, between crime fiction and horror fiction. Don't know if he actually spoke like that, but I like it. <laughs> and, and, yeah, but the thing is, underneath that, it's actually a book that's about food security. Mm. Uh, because our butcher had recently retired and we were trying to find somebody else that we trusted to buy our meat from. And, it, of course, the book is all about things that aren't what they claim to be entering the food chain. And, of course, yep. for four years after that, we had the horse meat scandal because hmm. everybody actually woke up to the fact that our food chain is just... It's so opaque that we don't hmm. like it. Four years before that happened, I wrote a book about it. Did anybody notice? <laughs> no. No. You're like Cassandra. <laughs> Only sexier and with a beard. <laughs> but yeah, no, the, so there's, there's a lot of stuff, that kind of stuff in the books, and there, there, there yeah. always has been. Uh, I am toying with being slightly more blatant in the next book. And so where did those... Um, the ideas for the crime... So you've, you know, you've always got the kind of ongoing story with, with Logan and his colleagues... The idea for the crimes that he's dealing with, where do those come from? Are you sort of reading the paper one day and you see, for example, I mean, this, this one, we don't want to give too much away, but there's a, it's about child trafficking, child abduction, mm. um, which happens very early on in the book. And, you know, this is such a kind of grim and, and frightening subject. And I wondered how you came to that or what, had you read something about it or had your police kind of associates no, uh, mentioned I, it? Or? I have been basically teasing that plot line since Cold Granite. And every, every now and again, it will just break the surface in one of the novels and then go back underground again. Um, and I think the, 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 the furthest it's breached ever before was probably after Cold Granite, it would be The Missing and the Dead. Um, there's a, a scene that, that pretty much expressly states what this book was going mm. to be about. Uh, and then, of course, two, three books later, that's what this book's about. And what does it, um, what does it entail, researching something like this? Because you were, you were mentioning that you know, spending a lot of time in Logan's head when terrible things are happening to him is, is quite a kind of bleak experience. And I wondered how much research you had to do into this subject and whether that's, it, that must be quite a distressing thing to have to spend time looking into. Um, obviously, you've got to be very, very careful about researching anything on that kind of front. Mm. Yes, obviously um, not on your home computer. Just always speak to police officers yeah. and, and get them to Google it, because you know, if they get arrested, that's fine. Um, yeah, well, well, the thing is, a, a, lot of, a lot of when it comes to organisational things, don't really need to research that at all, because you can pretty much guarantee that whatever you come up with, as far as fiction is concerned, somewhere in the world it is happening, and it's probably happening much, much worse. Um, so although the, the forensic stuff is very 
is quite meticulously researched with forensic specialists. Yeah. The side of it, I'm trying very hard not to give anything away. But yeah. The side of things that you're talking about is more about, well, how would you do that? How can you? How would you logically set this up if you really didn't want to get caught? Not if you were in a crime novel and had to give away clues <laughs> um, so that a detective could pick it up. But if it, if this was you, how would you actually do this? How would you separate these things out? Yeah. The great thing about criminals is that they do not have manuals. And in terms of, I mean, you mentioned you, obviously you do work closely and, and have done for um, years with kind of the, lots of the people that you credit in your acknowledgements, the police officers who, you know, you get the inside stuff. And you've actually now got a, um, it was a little while ago, you've got a, a dissecting room named after you. I do. Um, so uh, that must be a great honour. Do you get to go to the McBride <laughs> dissecting room? I have been to the McBride dissecting room, yes. And, and have you actually sat in on... on Autopsies and that kind of thing. Well, they don't actually do um, autopsies. We don't do autopsies in Britain, you know. <laughs> we do postmortems. It's American. Sorry, America. 16th century. In a mortuary, <laughs> not a morgue, a mortuary. I, I, I think my first book when it came out, I got this very, very angry, ranty email from a pathologist down south. That was pretty much exactly that. If you want to do a if you want to do an autopsy, you would have to become a veterinarian. <laughs> As if that was the worst thing your child could grow up to be. Mum, Dad, I need you to sit down. I have some news. I'm going to be a vet. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So um, I, I have a mortuary dissecting room. Um, but it's a dissecting room, not uh, somewhere that postmortems are carried out. It's for teaching anatomy to surgeons and dentists and medical students. And, um, and how did this great honour come about? It came about because I was pipped at the post by Val McDermott. Oh, yes. <laughs> for the, that was a for a mortuary, was yeah, it? Yeah, so, so the mortuary is named after Val. But so there's the Val McDermott mortuary and then down the corridor. The, no, the in, inside. Oh, it's inside. <laughs> I have burrowed inside of Val and I, I live there. She's also, um, she sponsors uh, a stand at Starts Park that's named after her dad. So you can actually go and eat your pie and bovril at the McDermott stand in Starts Park, drop dead of a coronary because of all <laughs> the pies and bovril you've eaten, be wheeled off to the McDermott mortuary and then chopped up into little bits in the Stuart McBride <laughs> that's the final honour of uh, that's your final destination. Um, Hopefully, that's your final destination, not pies <laughs> or anything like that. No, that's only in your imagination. Um, I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> I, I do not wish to suggest in any way, shape, or form that if you donate your, your body to medical science, it will end up in pies. Okay? <laughs> that was merely done for humorous effect. And I, I'm, I'm keeping this going until, until Stephanie has until recovered her composure <laughs> and, and is ready to go on with the until next I question. Until I remember what I was going to ask you. I, got, I was so um, caught Do up something. in the ideas She's of on both sides of the paper. Pies. I was so caught up with the idea of pies. Um, We've all been there. We? Um, so I was going to ask you... Good, uh, good. I'm glad you are. Because <laughs> to be honest, this bit's dragging a little bit. I know it isn't it. So, um, where do you go after 
You finished this one with Logan uh, in a in a oh, fairly. Oh, pardon me. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's a cheap gag, but you all laughed. <laughs> never, never, ever. I think this is one of these life lessons. Never trust a human being who does not laugh at a fart joke. <laughs> there is something wrong there. Something is, that's a warning sign. Uh, I'm so glad I volunteered to do this. <laughs> I know, I did They're not paying me enough at all. <laughs> I know, and we haven't even got to the... Uh, yes, oh, no, no. Now we pr- should, perhaps we should move on to... Um, no, we'll, we'll finish, to the finish, finish your question. I was going to finish the question. Well, um, no, let's go back to... Uh, I, I was going to ask... Okay. What I was going to ask you, um, on the subject of you know, dealing with grim and horrible themes, and, yes. uh, and the books are so funny... At the same time, and I, this gallows, the gallows humour that's in there, does, is that something that, um, is that innate to you, or was that when you, st- I mean, obviously it is innate to you, but when you started talking to police officers and researching your crime novels, did you find that that was something that, that they mentioned a lot, that kind of well, gets them through the, through the working day? I'm going to let you and the people here into a huge secret, and you're not, you've got to promise not to tell anybody, okay? You promise? When I was doing my research with the police officers, what I discovered was that they're kind of human beings, <laughs> just like us. Really? <laughs> they really are. Do we have any police officers in today? They're, they're undercover. They almost never volunteer. <laughs> Not, oh, one officer like Would you say that you're, you're all just like a miserable, grim-faced bunch of bastards? <laughs> 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 But his wife's saying yes. <laughs> not at work, he's not. He has fun there. <laughs> he has people he likes at work. <laughs> I'm sorry, I do not in any way wish to imply that. Uh, no, but the thing is, I've worked in teams all my life, and I think most of us have. Um, and, you know, when you work in a team, you make fun of each other, don't you? That's just how it works. No team operates just on, we are all professional, we just do this and we just do that. Every team I've ever worked in, we, we, we take the piss out of each other. We, that's what we do, and we laugh at and with each other. And that's all I did. That's, I just wrote the police as if they were the people I had worked with, or as if they were me. So that's what they do. The, the humour in the books doesn't come from funny situations. Well, except for the, the <laughs> Logan and uh, sorry, the, the Steel and Dufty book, Now We Are Dead, that is intentionally a more humorous style yeah. of novel. But in the books, although the, the funny things do not happen in the books, but the way that officers react to each other and treat each other is where the humour comes from, because that's where the humour comes from in real life. And I think that's that's why I'm always quite surprised when I read a, a lot of contemporary crime fiction that so many of them are just these grim-faced robots for justice. And all they do is they constantly do the case, and they find the killer, and they bring justice, and that is what they do. Completely unlike real human beings. And it's as if by stripping them of their humanity, or a very important part of their humanity, it becomes more worthwhile somehow. Mm. So, so that, again, and this is, this, again, this is another thing. A humorous novel is never... As, as, 
as, as serious a work yes, of fiction yeah. as, as one that doesn't contain any humour, even though a novel with humour in it has more human characters than one that doesn't. Yeah. And do you think it's sort of thrown into relief even more because they are in such grim situations and that's where they're finding their kind of... You know, in the teasing of each other, that's their way of dealing with some of the stuff they are having well, to look at and confront. It's, uh, again, you, you will know this much, much better than I do, but I think it's, it's partially because... It's part, it's, there's, a, there's a small part of it that is that. There's also a part of it that there is very much a them and us mentality sometimes because police officers can deal with the same family like four times a week, the same group of people doing exactly the same things month after month after month, and those people hate the police because the police are always coming around to stop them trying to kill each other or trying to sell drugs or doing all these things. So there is, there is a core of, of, of the population that we probably never interact with, but that the police have to interact with on a daily and weekly basis, who hate them. So there's, there's also that, you know, there is that outside stressor for this is our team, this is us. You know, we, we, we share a joke because this is us and we're going to have to go back to that house again tomorrow and maybe yeah. this time he'll have killed his wife or the son will have overdosed or they'll have burnt down somebody's shed again. And partly it's just because they're people and people like to take the piss out of each other. Yeah. Um, this has all been very serious, too. hasn't it? It has, hasn't it? Tell us a joke then, Stuart. Or tell us something to... Um, Lighten the mood before we open it up to audience questions. You just want to do the thing, don't you? Yes. No, I, actually, I don't want to do the thing. I want you to do the thing. No, but you have to do the thing. You've agreed to do the thing. I know, I have. Did I sign anything? Yes. Okay. Um, you see, I'm not even really sure of the context of the thing, so I'm just going to ask you to introduce the thing, and then we can start being so cryptic about it. Well, part of what I like to do, because it's this close associative discourse when I'm writing, is that I will often present things in such a way that they cloud the issue. So if Logan is in the car and the radio is on, you will hear what's on the radio. So as if you were actually in the car with him. Rather than having summary narrative just say, there was a song on the radio, it was Duda by the Boomerang Ring and the Uduli and it played, and, but Logan then stopped. I will make up songs for the radio so that I can actually have lyrics that sometimes either are completely juxtaposed with what's actually happening to provide a contrast, mm -hmm. or that do often as well will provide clues to scenes that are about to come. So that there's a little taste of foreshadowing, so the flavour is already in the back of your mouth by the time you take a bite in two or three chapters' time. Um, so I, I, I like that. I like that you, all these things are layered mm. and as if you were sitting in the back of the car you're having to pick what's important out of the sensory experience that you're presented with. So I like to put these songs into the books. And my editor likes to take them out again. <laughs> and then I like to put some of them back in again. And then they come out again. And eventually we settle on a compromise where she gets mostly her own way. But sometimes I'm naughty and can sneak some stuff in. And I, I, I got to the point where I started putting things in that I knew would annoy my editor. <laughs> because I am Scottish and I am Thrawn. <laughs> and that's what we do. 
after all, it is our, it is our defining characteristic, really, isn't it? Deep sexiness, smashing intelligence, and we are thrown buggers. So, so the, there, is a, there is a song that I have written. It, 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 it is a parody one. They're not, not, not usually parody. Um, for the new book that I'm writing, exclusively because I know that my editor will go, we can't have this in the book. You cannot put this in the book. And it's a steel song. And <laughs> her songs are that I best know, right? songs. I know, I think the best one that I, I ever got past her was just a, a, a tiny, tiny wee one. And what's, it's what's steel singing? Oh, yes, I'm the great Pudenda. <laughs> Pudenda man, you know. <laughs> so, you know, we got that through. Um, so so the, the one that I have written is for, for Steele, um, Stephanie has very proudly and, and womanfully, I was going to say manfully there, but I thought, that's sexist. Mm. Very personfully. <laughs> um, she, she's going to chip in with the hey-ho <clears throat> said rollies. I'm doing the backing vocals, but please feel free to join in <laughs> as well if you know it. Please join in. That's about the only words you'll be able to recognise. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Shall we? Oh, okay. <sighs> Me, ma, ma, ma. <clears throat> I'm warmed up. Are you warmed up? Stuart? What key are we in? What key are we in? Is that C? No idea. Thanks, by C. I was trying to catch you out. Mm. Yeah, it's by C. Anyone with perfect pitch can tell us. After you. A frog he would a wooing go. Hey ho, said Roly. Don't look at me, look at them. <laughs> you're not singing it to me, you're singing it to them. <clears throat> Start again, shall we? Now again, if you want to join in, that's fine. <clears throat> that's good. A frog he would a wooing go. Hey ho, said Roly. A frog he would a wooing go. Whether his mother would let him or no, with a humpy, pumpy, rumpum and dumpum. Hey ho, said Anthony Roly. That was one of your bits as well. Oh, the I'm sorry. Anthony Roly. I, <clears throat> I haven't heard this for quite a while. You haven't? No. Not okay. so. But you, you'll recognise. You'll recognise. I know, pretty. but just nod me in, will okay. We haven't rehearsed. So he bought him some condoms and bought him some lube. Hey, ho, said Rolly. He bought him some condoms and bought him some lube. Did him some things that were terribly rude with a naked lady who charged him a fiver. Hey, ho, said Anthony Rolly. You're regretting this already, aren't you? <laughs> so pull down my trousers and spank my behind. Hey, ho, said Rolly. So pull down my trousers and spank my behind. Shove up my bumhole the things that you find in a bedside cabinet filled up with dildos. Hey ho, said Anthony Rowley. Now he went to an orgy with all kind of folks. Hey ho, said Rowley. He went to an orgy with all kind of folks. Had sex with two women, a duck and a goat. And a blow-up doll that looked like Keith Richards. Hey ho, said Anthony Rowley. Doesn't matter how much air you pump into that thing, it's still going to be wrinkled. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it gets ruder. So, so we'll, we'll just skip to the end, OK? We'll just skip to the end. Oh, it's well, that, That's exactly the kind of reaction we're looking for. <laughs> Poor Froggy, he died. 
They put him in a box. Poor Froggy, he died. They put him in a box. He died of the syphilis plague and the pox, with nasty red pustules all over his cock. And he's up there in heaven now, shagging the angels. Hey ho, says Anthony Rowley. <laughs> Stephanie Merritt, people. Wasn't that well. much better than being a backing vocalist to some, some jumped-up bunch of upstarts crime writers who think that they've got a rock band? <laughs> that was unforgettable, Stuart. I'll be waking up in the night in a cold sweat thinking about that. Um, well, I think this would be an excellent moment to go to audience questions if you can get, uh, scrub any of that from your mind and, um, or indeed ask Stuart where he gets his ideas from. Um, I can't imagine. Uh, so if you've got a question, we've got microphones which will come to you if you put your hand up nice and tall. Um, I love the fact that please. I can actually see my wife sitting at the back there going, oh, God, why did you <laughs> sing that song? <laughs> oh, she must That's be used to it. a pure beamer you've got there. <laughs> uh, lady in the front, please. Um, it's whole music time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're very witty and very funny. Thank you for that. I was wondering whether you ever get inspired by real facts like the Chronicle, you know, Edinburgh Chronicle or whatever it happens in the in the criminal scenes in the UK. Um I don't often base the plot of a novel on something that's really happened. Um that's just me. I I feel I feel uncomfortable with the thought that I'm exploiting somebody... Because the thing, the things that I write about, um, you know, murder, has an impact that goes down generations. Now, it's not just the people... Uh, I think this is actually... It, it comes out in the blood mm. road. It's not just the person who dies when somebody's murdered. Yeah. There is a ripple effect that, that spreads out, um, and it, it has a massive impact. Um, so I, I always feel that, that I, I would be uncomfortable exploiting that for fun um, but often actually things uh, said in the supermarket are a great just snippets of conversation where there's, there is no context for what this little bit in the middle <laughs> is can just spark off in bizarre directions but, but not actual true crimes, no, no. Isn't this much better than silence? Isn't it? It is so much better. It's also really good for the fast okay. passing of the microphone. <laughs> Hello. Right. Um, I just wondered if you, uh, how you remember all your ideas, if you use pen and paper or just put it straight into a laptop or a tablet or if you're old technology or new technology in terms of... Um, well, the answer would be yes. <laughs> um, I have a vast collection of post-it notes that I keep ideas on all the way around the outside of my whiteboard. If you're buying post-it notes for this purpose, super sticky. Always buy super sticky because regular ones just fall off after about six months or so. Super sticky ones, they'll be up there for years. Really good. Um, I have written on my mobile phone and then emailed myself that and put it into a novel. I do most of it on computers, but 
there's handwritten notes. That's really whatever I have to hand at a point. I hate being anywhere that I don't have something either to write on or something that I can type on. So, yes. <laughs> so you're following people around the supermarket with your phone, just making notes of their conversation. Yeah. So if you see Stuart behind you, that's what's happening. And you may find your dialogue. My, my, my Fiona hates it because <laughs> I'm one of these people I will go up and down every single aisle in the supermarket regardless of what I've gone in for. Even if I've just gone in for bread, I will still go every single aisle listening to people. <laughs> it could be you next time. Um, any more questions? Yes, uh, another lady at the back and then a lady in the middle. <laughs> I'm just enjoying the running with the microphone to the, to the music. Hi, um, I saw you a few years back at, I think it was Bloody Scotland with Val McDermott. And somebody asked you then if you had in mind when you're writing any, if it was ever brought to television, who you would see as Logan and um, Steele. And I think you were agreeing that Maureen Beattie would be great as Steele, but I can't remember. And I've always been trying to remember who you thought would be a good Logan and if where, whoever you thought then would still be... Have you got anyone in mind? That doesn't sound like me at all. <laughs> I'm, ter I'm terrible with the names of pretty much everybody. Um, it took me six months to learn the name of the six people I shared a flat with in Edinburgh. <laughs> I, I'm not joking about that. I did, I'm really, so when it comes to actors, I will usually go to Fiona. Who is the, the, the guy in the thing with the hair? No, not him, the other one. And it, it'll be that kind. So I'm, I'm, I would be surprised if I'd actually named a Logan. Um, also, I'm not letting anybody have the rights just now. Because they change everything. They change everything. Oh, D.I. Steele's just too exciting. We need to make her more dull. And we need to make Logan more weird. No, that's the whole point of the books is that Logan is a normal person. And he works for weirdos. It's, it's an <laughs> it, it is an inversion of, of the standard crime fiction trope, which is that the, the hero of, it has always got to be the weirdo. So... You can't just twist it around like that and say, oh, look, it's on television now. It's not on television. Something else is on television. <laughs> <laughs> of course, if Tom Cruise was to turn up with a massive, great, big check, uh, I have lady, my price. There was a lady in the middle there. Mr. Bombastic! <laughs> we want is a bombastic, romantic, fantastic lover. People are just passing it really slowly just to watch <laughs> Stuart's dance. Please now. tell me that you have Sir Mix-a-Lot at some point coming up. <laughs> it's like an 80s disco. Hi. Um, how do you pronounce the name of Logan Mercury's cat? Logan's cat. Logan's cat is called Cthulhu. Can and you say that again, please? Cthulhu. And Thank you very much. It comes from H.P. Lovecraft, um, who was one of the seminal American horror writers. Um, and you'll know this being mm. a suspense and, and horror Thank person. So, yeah. Thank you. Eventually he will return and eat all our souls. Fun days, fun days. Because you did start out as a sci-fi 
sort of sci-fi writer, didn't you? That was your. Was that not your I, first I, I, I forays sort of, into fiction? I sort of deny. Well, no, my, my very first foray into fiction was a crime novel. It was a comedy crime novel, and it was terrible. It was really, really awful. But I was so proud of it. Um, and then I wrote a crime novel that was set in the future. And this is the weird thing, because as you know, if you if you set a crime novel in the past, it's historical crime fiction. If you set it now, it's contemporary crime fiction. If you set it in the future, it suddenly becomes science fiction, hmm. and it loses any crime fiction attachment to it. So it is, it's a serial killer novel that is set 50, 60 years into the future in Glasgow. But it's a serial killer novel. But were you, did you, were you influenced by people like Lovecraft? Was that sort of part of your formative reading? I think, I think, I think all, all writers are influenced by every single book that they read. Even though there's a, a book um, that I've never thrown out that I, I really should, uh, by Guy N. Smith, called Carnivore. And it's awful. <laughs> to me, to me, I didn't enjoy it. Was, uh, but it was one of those books where I could go through it and go, I see why this isn't working for me. Um, and sometimes those books are, are just as important as the ones yeah. that go, wow, how did you do this? Sorry, I hijacked that. I got, in, <laughs> got very interested in your Lovecraft. Um, connections. Do we have another question? <laughs> oh, so it's a gentleman in the middle and then a lady down here. <laughs> I was waiting for this. Have you written a book yet that you think it's going to be tough to beat that one, or do you just keep getting better? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, keep, I keep trying to get better. Um, I, I, this, this is why I am such a fat, miserable bastard. Because I, I, I genuinely do spend all day, every day, at the computer trying to write better trying to be a better writer, trying to give the reader something that they haven't had from me before, something that is more immersive, that is a better experience, that is more of everything, that is just, that is just more, that is better writing. Um, so, no, I, I would never... I, I can't point at any of my books, really, and go, that was perfect. That's when you peaked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, are, there are books that, I've, that I look back and think, that's one of my better ones or that I, I enjoyed more than, than others. The, if you've re ever read Sawbones, for example, the first chapter of that is the f my favourite opening chapter of any book I've ever written. Um, and I would love to be able to do that again. Obviously, it, it, I couldn't do exactly that same thing again, but to do it like that and for it to work like that, I would be very happy. But that's just the start of the book. Uh, there was a lady in the second row, is it? Yeah, just here, thank you. One, one, thing, that, 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 ooh, <laughs> one thing that often happens, I think, with, with most writers is that a lot of us aren't exactly overflowing with self-esteem. And those that are... Mm, sort of the ones not to always avoid found parties. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yes, lady. Um, you obviously like cats. Do you, do you live with... A cat or cats? Do I live with a cat or cats? Yes. I'm guessing you're one of those people who doesn't read the acknowledgements. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the thing is, I, I, in every single acknowledgement, I have always thanked Fiona and Grendel uh, because I, I, we bought Grendel, who's a Maine Coon cat, 
Um, with, have you got Mink Coon cat? Oh, are they not just the best cats? Wonderful cats. Um, but when I got my advance through for cold granite, that was the treat because we thought, well, this may never happen again. We may never ever sell another book. Let's buy something that we would both love. So what we did was we went and we bought Grendel. And um, she is daddy's little girl and she has been my consultant serial killer on every book <laughs> since. I, I, have de I have dedicated a book to Grendel. Um, she, again, she's in my bio and she's, uh, she's in the acknowledgements all the time. Currently we have four, well, three and a half. Uh, we have Grendel, we have Onion and we have Beetroot. Uh, we rescued Onion and Beetroot. Onion from the middle of the road, he'd been hit and Beetroot was about to die uh, under a bush uh, from cat flu. And the half cat is um, Garkin. And he's a half cat because he's not technically our cat. He belongs to somebody else, but he stays at ours, so. <laughs> it's not half a cat. He knows, he knows, he knows a good thing. Um, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid, because we have very sadly run out of time. But um, as I mentioned, Stuart is going to be signing books in the book tent on this side, um, so just outside the door. If you want to make your way there, grab your copies of The Blood Road if you haven't already, or any of the others. And if you still have any burning questions, I'm sure Stuart will be happy to have a chat with you as you get your books signed. Um, please join me in thanking Stuart for this phenomenal <laughs> entertainment. And can I please get you to, to direct your love and adoration to Stephanie Merck, who's put up with quite a lot tonight, I think. And, of course, our magnificent soundmeister, who has done <laughs> just the best. Pub? Oh, yeah, well, books. You've got to sell some books, mate. Run away, run away. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.